Almighty God, we confess our desperate need for you. Left on our own, we are helpless and we are hopeless. We're grateful for your love, for your mercy, for your grace, for your faithfulness, and Lord, even for your justice. We acknowledge your perfect and abundant provision in our lives. All that we are, all that we have is due to your kindness and your abundant generosity. Lord, I thank you this morning for the gift that is Milton Community Church. We pray that you will anoint this body of believers with spirit and with power, that you would make us gloriously distinct from the world, that you would guard our hearts from worldly affections, that you would make us one in spirit and in truth. Father, give us a deep concern and burden for the lost. Make us fruitful in the harvest fields here and, Lord, even around the world. I pray that you might fire our passions to go and make disciples as we live each and every day. Father, we pray. I pray this morning for our sister churches and their leaders today. I'm thinking of men like Jared and his flock at Shadowbrook and Troy and his flock at Rehoboth, Clint and his flock at Chattahoochee First, Justin and his flock at Christ Church, Matt and his flock at M28 Church, Aaron and his flock at Mount Vernon, Shane and his flock at Faith Community, Manny and his flock at The Rock, Steve and his flock at Atlanta Reformation, Christian and his flock at Morningside, JB and his flock at Claremont, and Lord, a whole host of others. I pray this morning that even now you are empowering your servants to preach the gospel with clarity, with conviction, with compassion, Father, and with conversions. Move among your people today. Make your power and presence known in great and glorious ways. Redeem the lost. Conform the saints to the image of Christ. Make these churches and all the others salt and light in this community and in this world. Now, Lord, we pray and ask that you would give us ears that we might hear your word, that we might hear it clearly. We pray that you might purge our hearts and make fertile soil there to receive the seed. Lord, make us obedient servants, always quick to follow your imperatives. Make our souls desperate today that we might be refreshed by your Holy Spirit. And we'll give you the praise and the glory and the honor for you and only you are worthy. And we offer this prayer today in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen and amen. Well, we're in Ephesians chapter 2. This is one of the great passages in all of Scripture. Maybe I say that every week, but I believe it's true. This particular passage is one of the clearest descriptions of lostness and saving grace that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. Here we see the unregenerate, severe peril 
and we see the vastness of God's unmerited favor. Deadness, grace, works. They're all here. They're all here in this passage this morning. So join me as we unpack it together. If you have never heard the gospel, you'll never hear it more clearly presented than in this text this morning. If you're here this morning and there's someone in your life who doesn't know Christ, someone you would like to share the gospel with, you'll never hear the gospel presented more clearly than it is in this text this morning. I pray that it will stir and strengthen all of our hearts as God's evangels in this world. Right out of the gate, verses 1 through 3, Paul offers us a sobering truth. We might say the sobering truth, the ugly truth. It's not a pleasant place for us to be. No one likes to delve into the matter of sin, but it's so critical, so important that if we don't understand it, if we don't properly grasp what sin is in its nature and its effects, then the grace of God is somehow needless. He says that you were dead. Who's he speaking to? Well, he's speaking to redeemed people in Ephesus. But I would say that this goes for all people. All descendants of Adam were dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. What does he mean by dead? Well, Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 You may remember there God commanded the Lord saying, you shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. If you do, in the day that you do, what? You will surely die. You will surely die. Now we know Adam and Eve failed, didn't they? They failed to obey God in this matter. You remember the encounter? There between Eve and the serpent, the devil, and I believe Adam was there as well, not paying attention or focused somewhere else. But you remember the conversation. Satan asked Eve, did God actually say, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Eve said what? She said, we may eat of the fruit of all the trees, of Of the trees, just not from one tree. All the trees, all the trees in the Garden of Eden are available to us. Just this one tree. Neither shall we even touch it, she said, lest we die. These are the words of the Lord. This is what God spoke to us. How did Satan respond? You shall not surely die. What is death? What does it mean to die? (laughs) This is God being hyperbolic. God is not saying you're going to die. So they took the fruit because it looked good. It appealed to them as sin always does. And treason. Treason was committed that day in the Garden of Eden against the holy God. Breaking his law, breaking his command. I wonder if there was any significant change in appearance at that moment. Adam and Eve did not physically die at the moment. And it seemed that Satan was right. You won't die. 
But they did experience death, spiritual death, separation from a holy God. Later, when God came moving through the garden, the Scripture says, Adam and Eve were fearful, for the first time fearful of God, and ran to hide. God pronounced the curse upon them and upon all creation for this treasonous act. And in Genesis 3, 23 and 24, Therefore the Lord God sent him, Adam, out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Whereas God had said, this ground from which you have taken will be blessed and will provide everything that you need because I have ordained it to be so. Now because of your sin, you'll have to work this ground and squeeze from it everything that will sustain life. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Later we move forward. Things have gotten progressively worse, dramatically worse, we might say. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every, listen to it, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. A person whose heart fits this description does not and cannot seek God. There's not one gram, not one atom in man seeking a holy God. All men are seeking to flee from God, to hide from God, to continue to exalt themselves upon the throne that belongs to God. This is fallen man. This is what death looks like. Because God is life. And only God is life. Jeremiah 17, 9 said, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Sin has affected every person completely to their very core. Lorraine Boatner, theologian, wrote this. He said, This doctrine of total inability which declares that men are dead in sin, does not mean that all men are equally bad, nor that any man is as bad as he could be, nor that anyone is entirely destitute of virtue, nor that human nature is itself evil, is evil in itself, nor that man's spirit is inactive and much less does it mean that the body is dead. What it does mean is that since the fall, man rests under the curse of sin and that he is actuated by wrong principles and that he is wholly, listen, wholly unable to love God or do anything meriting salvation. Even to the point of deciding, deciding, to believe God, to love God. He is unable. He is incapable. Humans work hard at dismissing sin. Instead of sin, we speak of mistakes. We speak of slips. We speak of imperfections and failures. We tell fibs instead of lies. We have affairs instead of committing adultery and fornication. We embezzle rather than steal. We exercise re reproductive rights rather than commit murder. We adopt new identities rather than engage in perversion. 
Human philosophy suggests that we're all working to get better. The Bible says we're dead. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. James Montgomery Boyce said, If sin is only an imperfection to be eliminated over time as a result of the inevitable upward movement of the race, why has so much evil been around for so long? If sin is merely imperfection, why hasn't the imperfection been eliminated long before this? Verses 1 through 3 give us a true understanding of sin. These verses clarify the nature of sin and its effect. Humans portray sin as a mere unfortunate nuisance. God views sin in a much more severe manner. It's a matter of life and death. He says the sinner is dead in trespasses and sins. Again, Genesis 2.17, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 6.23, For the wages, for the payment, for the due of sin is death. Historically, there have been three basic views of human nature without God, without God's grace. First of all, some will say man is well. Man is well. The world is getting better. Man is improving. He's maturing. He's growing up into his full potential. Others might say that man is sick. Something is wrong. There's too much evidence to suggest that man is well. There is something wrong. There's too much hatred, poverty, disease, too many wars. It's not really that he's totally helpless, bad maybe, desperate maybe, but not hopeless. He just needs a little help to get over the hump. And the third position is that man is dead. He's not well, he's not merely sick, he's dead. He's dead. As a spiritual corpse, he's unable to make a single move toward God. He's unable to think a right thought about God. He's unable to respond to God. God must first bring this spiritual dead corpse to life. You've heard the analogy over and over. You've been to those, those evangelism courses where they share with you that, you know, being lost is like falling overboard on the boat. And you're out there thrashing around in the water about to drown. And somebody needs to throw you a life ring and pull you in. Those analogies are wrong. It's more like this. You fell overboard, all right. Adam fell overboard and you went with him. You're attached to him. You're connected to him. He not only fell overboard... He's not thrashing. He's dead. He has sunk to the bottom, and all of us have gone with him. We are dead and powerless unless Christ comes to get us. Dead in trespasses and sins. Sinners also practice evil. Sinners are both dead and alive. As odd as that sounds, what do you mean, pastor? That's a contradiction. No, we are dead to God spiritually, but we are very much alive to the passions of the flesh. Transgressions mean that we deviate from the right course. We cross a boundary. 
This expresses our rebellion against God's rule, against God's law. Sins mean that we miss the mark. It's like shooting an arrow who, that lands short of the target. All have sinned, Scripture says, and fall short of the glory of God. We simply are not the people God intended us to be. Sinners are not only dead in trespasses and sins, and they not only practice evil, but they are in bondage. Sinners are enslaved. We cannot escape our sin. 2 Peter 2.19 says, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Paul gives us three ways that sinners are in bondage here in this passage. He says that we follow the course of what? The world. The world. We're in bondage to it. We follow the course of this world. This world has set on a course, aimed on a course that rebels against God, that commits treason toward God, and we are drawn along in that. He says we follow the prince of the power of the air. This is a reference, obviously, to Satan, to the one who has led men, helped men, tempted men to rebel against God. The prince of the power of the air. And they carry out the passions of their flesh, he says. We once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Sinners are by nature children of wrath. What does this mean? Children of wrath. Without God's grace, sinners are objects of God's judgment. Due to receive God's wrath. Men hate this idea. They don't like this idea. If God is good, they say, why, why should he judge anyone? Surely a good God will save everyone. That is, after all, truly good and loving, is it not? If God's good and loving, he's going to save and redeem everyone. Well, God is good. God is love, God is compassion, God is kind, but God is also holy. God is also righteous. God is also just. He will not, he cannot be tolerant of sin. He cannot just wink at it. Listen, if God were ever going to give sin a pass, if he were ever going to wink at sin, it would have occurred when Jesus hung with the weight of sin upon his shoulders on the cross. But because God did not pass by, pass over Christ, he is able to pass over us as sinners. Abraham's sin, Jacob's sin, David's sin, Paul's sin. Christ paid all their debt of sin upon that cross. If you're in Christ today, he paid your sin upon that cross. But make no mistake about it. Your grace, your redemption did not come cheap. Christ has paid the debt. Wednesday night in our Bible study, Rick made a point about two small words that we see a number of times in Scripture, and they're evident here in verse 4. But God, 
just two words, but with incredible meaning. They infer going in one direction, but something changing to move in another direction. But God. There was the situation I referred to a moment ago there in Genesis where God said every intent of man's heart was to do evil. And he brought judgment to bear upon creation, saving only Noah and his family in the ark. The scripture says at the end of chapter 7 that the waters prevailed on the earth. The judgment prevailed for 150 days. It was pouring and pouring and pouring. It was endless and it extinguished all that was beneath it. But chapter 8 verse 1 says this, but God, but God intervened, but God intervened. And we see the same thing here in verse 4. This Verses 1 through 3 give us this awful, ugly truth of where we are in our sin and trespasses. We are dead, separated from God, due to receive God's wrath and judgment for our sin. But God, being rich in mercy, being rich in his great love for us, These verses contain words like riches and mercy and love and life and grace. How different is that from verses 1 through 3? Trespasses and sins and dead and... But God brings life and grace and love in boundless fashion. This is most often called irresistible grace. Michael Horton, I think, has a better way of stating it when he calls it intoxicating grace. Intoxicating grace. He says in Ephesians 5.18, which reads this way, it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Horton says a person who drinks in excess is under the influence of alcohol. Every fiber of his body becomes impacted by the influence of the alcohol. He'll be influenced in his decision-making. That person will do things that they normally would not do. They may drive recklessly. They may pick fights. They may vandalize property. They may engage in risky, perilous behavior but he or she is still responsible for their actions, even though they may be under the influence, or if they're not under the influence. By nature, sin has intoxicated our whole being. We're unable to please God in any way. Our decision to turn from God is still our responsibility. But sin controls our faculties. The decisions we make are our own, and God will hold us accountable. But when the Holy Spirit moves in, when the Holy Spirit takes up residence, He intoxicates us with new desires. He brings with Him power to act upon those desires. We just as naturally turn to God as we before turned away from God. The decisions to turn from God and turn toward Him are our decisions. But apart from God's intoxicating grace, we will never decide for Christ. 
We will never decide for Christ unless God intoxicates us with the Spirit of God and leads us to desire Him. Being rich, being rich in mercy. What does it mean to be rich? When I say the word rich, what's the first thought that comes to your mind? You think about having more than you need, right? Not having to worry about what you need. Being able to pay your bills. Someone says, hey, your house burned down. Ah, never mind. I've got plenty of money. I'll just build a new one. Uh, someone hit your car out there in the parking lot. Don't worry about it. No sweat. I got plenty of resources. I'll, I'll get it fixed. It means that you have sufficient supplies for any need that might arise. It may even suggest that you have exorbitant wealth. I was amazed this week. I shouldn't have been, but I was because I'm kind of naive sometimes. But to read that Elon Musk is worth $241 billion. Now, it's been a long time since I had calculus and math, but, you know, I had to sit down and think about that, Rick. Just how much money is that? That's a, you know, every billion is a thousand millions. That's why I have to boil it down to something I can actually think about. A million's pretty big, but a thousand millions is a billion? Then 241 of those, you know, I start running out of zeros. That's a lot of money. He doesn't have to worry about the needs that he has. He doesn't have to worry if he gets a, a terrible prognosis at the doctor and it's going to cost him some money to get medical treatments, does he? He doesn't have to worry. He's exorbitantly wealthy. Jeff Bezos, poor man, only $151 billion. But his stock has dropped recently, that's why. And Bill Gates... You know, only at $116 billion. I don't know how he's going to make it. But listen, God exceeds them all together by an infinite measure because he owns it all to begin with. But that's material things, right? What he's talking about here is mercy. Abundant riches in mercy. I had to give this some serious thought this week. We're all familiar with mercy, but most of us are pretty limited when it comes to mercy. I know I am. I take those spiritual gifts inventory tests, you know, before, and uh, mercy doesn't register on mine. And my wife confirms that. It just doesn't, you know. I say, well, it's not my spiritual gift. doesn't let me off the hook from being merciful, right? But it just doesn't. But as a doting papa, I have a large capacity for mercy for my grandchildren. The reason is because I love them unconditionally. But my ability for mercy is not unlimited, nor is it really lavish. I might have capacity for mercy for a neighbor or an acquaintance, probably less than I do for my grandchildren. My love will be noticeably less. I'm likely to have no mercy for a transgressor. You know, one of those guys that cuts you off in traffic. One of those guys that's riding your bumper, you know, for the last 10 miles. 
I might even have some hatred burst forth, not love. But God is different. His love does not depend on a person's actions or DNA. His love depends totally, completely upon who he is. He chooses to set his love on certain people. Out of that love, out of that love, Paul says, comes this lavish mercy. What I feel toward my grandchildren, God offers to his children more lavishly than I can ever conceive. It's infinite. It's unlimited. It's unconditional. It's more than sufficient. How messed up is your life today? Now, be careful. Some of you just thought, my life's in good order. Pride is crouching at the door. How messed up is your past? Do you think you've really blown it? Do you think there's no recovery? There's no hope? It's not true. Because God's mercy is more than enough. It's more than enough. Riches, his riches in mercy, it's surpassing riches. It's sufficient for the worst and the most heinous of sinners. Even when we were dead in sin, he made us alive together in Christ. That resurrection power is for us. By grace you have been saved. It's God's lavish gift to his elect. Why? Paul says he gives us the answer. Why would God do this? He says, to show the immeasurable riches of his grace. We are trophies of his grace to be displayed for all of eternity. You can't see it now, but one day in eternity, every, every image, every view of you will tell the story of God's immeasurable grace. I can't wait for that. I'm tired of looking at this mug in the mirror. I'm tired of viewing all my mistakes and my mess-ups and blown assignments and failures. And, and uh, we're not even talking about what's inside this head. But Paul says, for all of eternity, in Christ, in the richness of his grace, you will be a trophy, a display, a reflection of God's immeasurable grace. He saves his people for the purpose of demonstrating his grace, but also the surpassing riches and wealth of his grace. He gives us three propositional phrases here, prepositional phrases, sorry, sorry, Nathan, sorry, Todd. I don't know who I need to apologize to for my grammatical mix-ups today, but whomever you are, I'm sorry. Prepositional phrases here, modifying the verb show the first one is in coming ages it tells us how long it's going to last in coming ages how long will it last forever forever and ever and ever and ever and ever there's never a period at the end of it In kindness, he says. This tells us how God displays his grace. It's a common term in Jewish and Christian literature. 
It's pointing to an attribute that God exercises toward his people. He shows his surpassing riches in benevolence and kindness that we don't deserve. We can't deserve. We can't earn it. He doesn't do it in a flaunting, showboating kind of way. It will bless us abundantly with goodness that we can't imagine how sweet it will taste. And it's in Christ. This describes the sphere in which God's grace and kindness works on behalf of his people. Frank Thielman, talking about these verses 4 through 7, said this. He said, you know, Paul paints a bright portrait of God's grace that stands in dramatic contrast to the dark landscape of human sin in verses 1 through 3. By giving believers life with Christ, raising them up with Christ, and seating them with Christ in his place of victory, God has demonstrated the overwhelming, merciful, loving, and gracious nature of his character. This demonstration of his character was not something that happened as a side effect of his gracious saving work, but was the very purpose for which he did this work. He rescued those who were in Christ from the domination of the world, the devil, and the flesh so that he might demonstrate forever the overwhelming graciousness of his nature, of his character. So we've seen this ugly but important truth in verses 1 through 3. And we see verses 4 through 7 that God provides this glorious gift that is his grace. In verses 8 through 10 continue with the grace theme, but provide some important clarification. We're saved not by works, Paul says, but we are saved for good works. We're not saved by works, but we are saved for good works. By grace you have been saved through faith, he says. It is grace alone and faith alone. If it's not grace alone, it's not grace at all. If it's not faith alone, it's not faith at all. Grace alone means God does it all. The only thing I contribute to my redemption is sin. It's all that I have to bring are my filthy, disgusting rags before God. He does everything that is necessary to make me new again. I'm radically depraved. Always. Not desiring God, not ever desiring God, but always desiring to rebel against God. In my lost state, in my dead, spiritually dead state, I always desire rebellion against God. And this is true of every human being that is descended from Adam. That's all of us. We come into this world bent in this way. We've got to get our minds around this. It's not a matter of good people. Well, it's a good person. No, are they alive in Christ or dead in sin? I have nothing to offer to balance my account. I have no desire to please God or to try to balance my account. I'm rightfully, justly condemned to death for all of eternity. Such is my state, being born into this world as a descendant of Adam. But God. But God intervened. But God 
turn the tide in a new direction. But God, in his incredible love, condescended to take on flesh and live as a man in this fallen world. He did so without sin. He gave himself as a substitutionary sacrifice to atone for my sin. For the sin of the elect, his resurrection validates God's acceptance. The debt has been settled. It's been satisfied. Christ has finished in perfect work. And it is available to be applied to the sinner, to the elect, to the sinner's transgressions. The transaction comes through faith and only through faith. I hear God's truth. I'm a sinner incapable of pleasing God. I own it. I accept it. I'm disgusted by it and broken by it. God gives me that gift, that ability to understand it in just those terms. I own it, accept it, and repent of it. I hear the gospel. I have hope. Christ finished work for sinners draws me to himself. Suddenly, there's a change in the desires in me. I no longer want to rebel against God. I now realize how I am pitted against God, at enmity with God, at war with God. But I want something different. I want change. I believe this gospel. I reject my own sin and self-sufficiency, and I turn to Christ and throw myself completely upon his finished work. My only hope, my only hope, my every hope is now resting in his promise. Faith alone, believing and trusting in the gospel. And Paul says, just in case you're not clear or you've been confused, this is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. What? It's not your own doing, but what? It's the gift of God. The gift of God. A true gift is not earned. An earned wage exalts who? An earned wage exalts who? The earner, right? A true gift exalts who? The giver, not the recipient. So that no one can boast, he says. So that no one can boast. Listen. I'm, I'm in Christ today. I'm in Christ today. You know why? You know how? I didn't get my act together. I didn't decide, wake up one day and decide to straighten out my life. <laughs> I was on the run. I was fleeing from God. I hated God. I was rebellious to God. I was dead. But God came looking for me. He sought me. He changed me. He replaced the heart of stone and the rebellious heart with a heart of flesh that desires him, that's bent toward him, that now despises sin. He did this of his own volition. He imputed my sin to Christ's death and he imputed his righteousness to me. It's all him, all the time, always. Verse 10 offers us a healthy clarification. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We do not enter Christ by good works. Every false religion preaches good works. They just get them in the wrong order. 
I want to take you back to Acts chapter 19 while Paul was in Ephesus. Listen carefully. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, that is Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Man, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all Asia, this Paul, <laughs> this preacher, has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. How dare he? And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great Artemis, uh, goddess Artemis might, may be counted as nothing and that she may even be disposed, deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. In Ephesus, they were busy. They were busy building gods. Crafting gods, making gods, buying and selling gods, worshiping gods. These false gods were made by human ingenuity, by human craftsmanship. Paul writes to the Ephesians and he uses this as a salient point. He says, we are his workmanship. He's not our workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, not doing good works in order to be in Christ Jesus. We are certainly to be engaged in good works, but the order and the motive is what's important here. A good, if good works are your hope and attempt to gain God's approval, it will fail. But in Christ, we do good works for his glory because he has redeemed us, because he has changed the desires of my heart. Now I serve him because I'm a part of God's family. I've been adopted. I want to bring glory to the family name. And it's even better. The good works that we do, God has prepared and predestined for us. All you have to do is walk in them. Y'all didn't hear that, did you? <laughs> Even the good works God has already crafted and prepared for us that we might walk in them. Just walk in them. Rest in Christ and walk in them. His plan, His power, His motivation, His Spirit working in us and through us as His people. People have debated this forever. James 2, 14 through 18. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But not works to gain faith, but works because we have faith. In him. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works, says James. Matthew 5 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may what? See your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider how to stir one another up to what? Love and good works. Love and good works. Our good works give evidence that we are indeed in Christ. We do good works externally because we have been changed by God internally. Can I ask you bluntly this morning? Are you saved? Are you saved? Are you confident that when this life ends, you're going to be welcomed into the presence of God because you belong to Him, because you're in Christ? Are you alive together with Christ today? And does your life give evidence that you're alive with Him? Do the affections of your life validate your claim? Are you following Christ? Are you living in the strength of his resurrection power? Are you living a God-honoring life by his Spirit's provision? Do you have affections for Christ's good works, for his glory? Are you following the course of this world? Do you find your heart being drawn after the course of this world? Uh, most of us, because we're still in the flesh, we struggle with this. But what wins out? What wins out? Are you following the prince of the power of the air? Are you carrying out the passions of the flesh? This is true in your life. You may very well be fitting in that first three verses of this passage and be dead in trespasses and sin. But the good news is Romans 10 Paul writes and says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Maybe this morning you're not sure. Maybe right now you're not sure. Or maybe you are sure. Pastor, I'm not in Christ. I'm depending upon myself, my own works the good news is, if God gives you a desire to turn to Him this morning, then the Spirit is working on your behalf and drawing Him unto Himself. Put aside all of your excuses and fall upon the mercy of Christ this morning. It will not fail you. Never fail you. Friends, are there people intersecting your life that need to hear the gospel? Family? Friends, neighbors, acquaintances. Will you pray that God will work in their hearts to save them? Are you praying? Will you continue to pray? If not, will you begin to pray? Will you pray that God will use you as a witness to them? Will you be available? Will you say, yes, Lord, please use me. Use me. I want to share this glorious news with others. Own your fears and lean into His power and provision to accomplish what He has already predetermined will occur if you rest in Him. Father, we're grateful and thankful for the grace that is ours in Christ. Lord, help us Get our minds and hearts around the severity of sin and the deadness that goes with it. The corruption, 
that so easily besets human hearts and minds. And that, Lord, that we as believers, as those who are in Christ, so often treated in a cavalier fashion, God, forgive us. Place within our hearts a fire and a passion, Lord, to share this incredible news, to sow the seeds of the gospel in the soil that is this dark world, knowing that you will honor your word and say that it will go forth and not return void without producing the harvest that you intend for it to produce. Lord, have your way in us today. Make us, Lord, like Christ in all that we do and save. For your honor and for your glory. Amen.